Hey, thanks for joining us. We're just gonna dive right in because we got a whole bunch of stuff we're gonna try and cover today on the topic of God's anger. The whole series is called More Than a Feeling. And, and it's this idea of trying to align our emotions with God's because we get our emotions from God. We need to align them to God. So we're looking at anger today. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to James chapter one. And I'm gonna read verses 19. I'm just gonna read verse 19. James chapter 1, verse 19, if you do not know where the book of James is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. James chapter 1, verse 19, here's what it says. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone, okay, so that's all of us, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, verse 20, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You hear that? Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into this topic of anger, um, Lord, that we would understand you better, that we would understand this topic more fully. Lord, most importantly, in the understanding of you, Lord, that we would align ourselves to you in such a way that whatever it is that people are experiencing from us would look like you. In your name I pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, we're going to just dive right in. So when we're talking about this idea of anger, one of the things that seems biblically synonymous with the language of God's anger is his wrath. Now, wrath is one of those words that we, we think of like... Um, you know, just really, really um, old English thinking, right? We think wrath, we think smite, we think all these different kinds of things. It's a word that makes us quite uncomfortable, especially when we are dealing with God. So let's begin with a, a definition with wrath or anger as one of God's attributes. And it's important that we get a proper definition because when we use a word like anger or wrath, we tend to think of this uncontrolled anger, right? Like when we, we tend to think of it a bit more like, like rage or to be more like human wrath, right? Like, um, yeah, it's, it's far from the truth about God's wrath. So, so here's a working definition. It's not a complete definition, but a working definition of God's anger, God's wrath. God's anger is his holy hatred of all that is unholy. Right, so it's the emotion that he has as it relates to all things that are unholy. It says holy anger. Now I want you to note a couple of distinctions about what God's wrath isn't. God's wrath is not uncontrollable rage. I often tell people that as it relates to our emotions, we have the option to react to people or respond to people. And the idea of reacting to people is the idea that that's just that quick interaction that we have, like something happens, we respond immediately or we react immediately and we don't think through whatever it is we need to think through so that we present ourselves in a way that is God honoring, people respecting, self-respecting, all that kind of stuff. Responding is the idea that, well, we take those moments, we take that beat to think and process and, and, and then respond to the individual. Often we think of anger as this uncontrolled rage. And, um, and, it, and it just seems as if we place anger in this space where it's not really allowed in the Christian life. Like some people actually believe that if they get angry, they're, they're doing something wrong. 
Anger is not uncontrollable rage. It's also not vindictive bitterness. It's not vindictive bitterness. It's not, you know, um, this idea of someone is just in their anger, just trying to get at somebody. That's not this idea. And it's also not God losing his temper. That's important because a loss of temper suggests a loss of control and God is never out of control, right? God brings order to things. He is not a God of disorder. And so, in fact, the Bible actually says in more than one place that God is, in fact, slow to anger. And you read that in Nehemiah 9.17, Psalm 103, verse 8. And so the idea here is simply that God just never loses his temper. And so when we understand the anger of God, we have to understand that it's not a loss of temper. It's not a loss of control. Uh, it's a measured response to the things that he's encountering, which happen to be evil, and he responds in anger towards evil. So wrath and anger is God's natural response to sin in the universe. He can't overlook it. He can't just wink at it, and he can't pretend it's not there. You know, as a matter of fact, the prophets never portray God's anger as something that cannot be accounted for, that is unpredictable or irrational. It's never spontaneous. It's, it's never a spontaneous outburst, but a reaction occasioned by the conduct of humans and motivated by concern for right and wrong. That's taken from the theology of pathos, um, which you know is, is a wonderful text when you're looking for things to read up on in terms of attributes of God. So let's talk about understanding God's wrath and anger then. God's wrath and anger can be better understood by breaking it down like this. What is he reacting to? How does he feel about it? What is his response? And what is the result? What's the outcome? And so when you think of it this way, what is he responding to? Well, he's responding to man's sin or rebellion. Uh, how does he feel about it? Well, he feels angry. There's anger, there's wrath. His response, now this is the part that truly gets us um, curious and, and, and causes all sorts of questions that come about. But his response, God's response, uh, is, or his action to his frustration, his anger, his wrath towards people, um, is respecting free will. He allows people to experience what their desire is. We'll get to that. He allows people um, to experience the consequences, and sometimes we even see that he creates the consequences. I'll give me an example of what I mean. Uh, a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea that God is going to create consequences for people. But that's in fact what happened in the wilderness. When you read in the book of Numbers, you have this account where, uh, once again, Israel is complaining and grumbling towards God uh, about, you know, they should have come back to Israel, all these sorts of ideas. And God just like, his... his the language is, is like he got angry. His face burned against them. As a matter of fact, anytime that it mentions God's anger in the Bible, the, the actual word is that uh, his nose burned like, or, or grew. Um, and so if God's nose grows, it, it is the indication of his patience. The longer his nose grows, he's long-suffering, he's, he's long-nosed. Uh, you know, slow to anger, long-nosed is actually the, the direct translation. Because the idea here is that whenever we face um, anger in our own lives, it, it's that idea that our, that our face gets all warm and, and really kind of centralizes in the center of our face, and that's where the nose is. And so um, it, 
it's again, direct translation is that the nose is what's impacted here. That being said, God sends these serpents um, to Israel in the wilderness. And as long as they looked at the serpent that was up on the pole, which of course is a, is a, um, a foretelling image of Jesus, as long as they're looking at the serpent on the pole, they're fine. The moment they turn away from it, the serpents bite them and they are then poisoned. Uh, there's consequence that God imposes on people uh, for their actions. And so there are times that he just says, okay, look, this is your free will. You get to choose. And so you're going to be dealing with the consequences of your choice. And there you go. And then sometimes he actually creates the consequence. So there's the interesting, interesting play there that, that we, we sometimes wrestle with, have difficulty with, primarily because we have a notion of what God should be if he's a loving God. Um, and that doesn't always give freedom for God to be sovereign because we impose certain things on him that maybe we shouldn't, right? All right, and then you get the result, right? So there's trouble either from God or the results of the sin that we are encountering. Here's an example. Exodus chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. This is God and Moses having a conversation. God wants Moses to be his guy, be his person to Pharaoh, right? And so it reads this way. It says, but Moses said, so this is after God saying, hey, listen, I want you to be my guy. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to speak my words. Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. So here's what's happening. Uh, because the next passage may seem confusing to us, right? Like the next verse actually says, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, right? So why would, why would God's anger burn against Moses? Because what was happening here is that God says, listen, you're my guy. I'm going to send you. Moses says, no. I don't want to. And so God's anger burns against Moses, right? This is his anger coming up. And he says, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. And so there's this pattern that we begin to see in the scripture. So then we've got sin, right? Which is denying the request of God, for example, in this case. God wants Moses to be his guy. Moses says, I don't want to. God's anger burns, right? So you have God bringing forward something, man saying no, God's anger burns against man, and then God allows that free will to be enacted, and there's, some would say, an accommodation, right? So God says to him, well, what about your brother Aaron? This would be the accommodation. God's desire was Moses. Moses says no. God gets angry. God says, fine, let's get Aaron to do it. And in doing so, here's the, here's the result, okay? This is, uh, in Exodus 32, we find that Aaron is unable to stand against the requests of the people when Moses is gone. It's actually an account where uh, this is where the golden calf is actually formed. And so the people come to Aaron and they say, listen, like this Moses guy, he's been gone a while. We don't even know what's happened to him. Let's make a, uh, a, a God for us. And so he tells them, okay, give me all your jewels, basically, right? All your gold, your earrings and rings and necklaces and all that stuff. And he forms it into the form of a calf, presents it to the people. And the people then say, like, this is the God that took us out of Egypt. And so you have the result was that the people turned even further away from God. God says, I want Moses. Moses says, no. God gets angry. God then says, fine, don't do it. Let's get your brother to do it. His brother does it, and the end result is is that even his brother couldn't stand in the space that he was supposed to stand um, in the face of the people. There's that result. And so this 
brings us to a language of the revelation of God's wrath. And it's a, it's a lengthy passage of Scripture that has caused people a great deal of difficulty um, because it's not an easy passage. I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 1. So in Romans chapter 1, what, what Paul is doing to the Roman Christians here or informing the Roman Christians, teaching the Roman Christians, is that God is sovereign, uh, that, that man isn't ultimately able to save himself, so God then needs to save man. And, and he formulates this argument uh, for us to understand kind of the why behind the whole thing. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godliness, uh, sorry, godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so this passage pronounces God's judgment on the entirety of the human race. That's what it does. The entirety of the human race comes under judgment, and it comes in response to man's rejection of God. You see, first man rebels, and then God responds in his anger. And Paul is teaching that moral corruption comes from corruption in faith. Here's another way to say it. Flaws in doctrine, doctrine being the, the truths about God, right? So flaws in doctrine lead to flaws in lifestyle. Flaws in doctrine lead to flaws in lifestyle. And once you decide to turn your back on God, the result is a river of wickedness that flows from our lives. It's actually what happens. And the only thing damming that river is the constraint of our own conscience and the constraint of circumstances. So left to himself, man will always turn to wickedness and there are no exceptions. But I want you to notice what happens in the passage there. First, men reject the truth about God, then they turn away from God, and then they turn to immorality. That's what's happening in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Men, people, humanity reject God, and then we turn away from God, and then we turn towards immorality. Because to turn away from one thing is to turn towards something else. And so when we turn away from God and we turn towards not God, that is the immorality. It leads us into sin. And so we need to be very aware of these things. And then we start talking about the results of God's wrath. So verses of Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, they trace down the progression as men, people, humanity come under God's wrath. And it starts with like an indifference towards God. And it ends in total moral corruption. Stage one is this indifference to God, right? So verse 21, uh, first part of verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Now, well, here's the reality. Truth demands a response. And the truth about God demands that we, the creatures of His creation, glorify Him as the great Creator. And when we don't, we fail in this great purpose for which we were created. Like, we're created to glorify Him. I think it's called the Westminster Catechism, actually. Uh, it says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the chief end of man. What is our purpose? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Uh, so it's not about us, it's about Him. And when we fail to do that, then we, we fail to move and maneuver within the purposes by which we were created. The next step, then, leads us to uh, verses 21, second half of verse 21 into verse 22, which is this idea of moral blindness. So when we turn away from God and we turn away from the purposes that He's created us for, 
but we're turning towards something. And in that turning, there's this blindness, this, this veil that suddenly comes over our eyes. He says, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So they became, so they may have been wise at one point, but now they become fools because they turn away from God. And there is this moral blindness. If the first step could be summed up in the word neglect, well, then the second word or the second step could be summed up in speculation. As people become indifferent to known truth, we begin to search for alternative explanations for truth. Paul draws this vivid picture. He says the result is the, their thinking became futile. And the idea of futile is that it's kind of like you're just spinning your wheels. It's worthless. It's a waste. It's futile. And it refers to this mental process of those who've turned away from God, their thinking, their ability to look at the world around them and to draw accurate conclusions about it. They become futile, become absolutely futile. And it's a strange picture of people who have, having rejected the truth, desperately search for anything to replace it. You see, that's what happens. When we reject the truth, we desperately search for something that can replace it. And the reason that we do that is because we're trying to make sense of our existence. And apart from God, I would suggest to you that apart from God, it's really difficult to make sense of our existence because it doesn't answer the question of why. You may answer a lot of what questions, but you can't answer the why question. And especially if the why question is directly related to God. Why are we here? To glorify Him. So it's a strange picture. And moving from, we move from every, from ideas to ideas, from theories to theories, desperately looking for a unifying world view. So moving away from God leads to the speculation where we're trying to figure out different ways of explaining our, our existence, and it's futile. And our minds become morally blinded because we just start letting anything happen. Almost anything, anyway. And we start moving in directions that are just so counter to how God has designed us and desired for us um, that the, the only way to explain it is, is like there's a blindness that's there. The third step would be the complete loss of God altogether. Uh, the, second, the first part of verse 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God. And, and I want you to note the progression, right? So neglect needs to, leads to speculation that then leads to moral blindness and now peaks in the total loss of God. And in God's eyes, the great philosophers of Greek and Rome, of Greece and Rome, they're fools because their philosophy was based on the rejection of God's truth. You ever, okay, it's kind of like this. You ever ride a seesaw? Uh, the notion of the seesaw, in order for it to work, it works on a very simple principle. If one person is up, the other person must be down. Both people can't be up at the same time, and both people can't be down at the same time. And that's kind of what it's like in the spiritual realm, too. Like, if God is up, then man is down. If man is up, then God is down. And what we find in the exchange that, that Paul is talking about in the book of Romans is that God was up, man was down. So in this proper relationship of understanding that God is above us, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, all those kinds of things. God is up here, we are down here in proper relationship. But when we exchange it, you know what we do? 
Instead of saying we exist for God, we shift it. And we say God exists for us. And so whatever gives me my perceived happiness or my perceived goals of what it means to live an ultimate life, God is required to give me that, otherwise He's not good. And so we've exchanged things. We've shifted it. Both can't be up at the same time. When God is in His rightful place, man will be in their rightful place. But when the roles are reversed, man, reality itself is distorted. And then it leads to this fourth step, which is idolatry. In verse 23, second half of verse 23. So the first half of verse 23 it talks about the idea that, uh, that he exchanged uh, the, you know, God, exchanged the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. So what happened is that because man is incurably religious, he, if he's not worshiping God, if the person is not worshiping God, we will find or make something to worship. In other words, we're always desiring something that's just outside of ourselves that we deem to be bigger than ourselves. And, and so because of that, that becomes the object of worship. When God is not the object of worship, we will always find something else to be the object of worship, whether it be work, whether it be family, whether it be friends, whether it be sex, whether it be power and prestige and influence or things. We always find something to satisfy that need of worship, that need of elevating something. And so we reach then the final stage, and we want you to note the progression from this verse, that when man turns away from God, he creates an image to worship. So we can't miss this. When we turn away from God, we always turn to something else. Always. When we turn away from God, we always turn to something else. It is an incurable fact. No person lives in a vacuum, and so we will either worship God or we'll replace Him with a God of our own making. And Paul uses a startling word to drive that point home. He says, exchange the glory of God for man-made images. It suggests that people knew what was true and traded it for falsehood anyway. That's a problem. And so that's the context that we look at when we say, okay, what stirs God's anger against man? And there it is. And so all this sin is taking place. There is a turning from God. There's a blindness. There's a turning towards idols. There is a decrease of God and an elevation of man. And then God's response to this, God gets angry, and then his response, so man sins, God gets angry, then there's a response. And the response is, in this case, on three different occasions in this section of Scripture, it uses a phrase that is actually, when you think about it, one of the most saddest phrases in the Scripture. God's threefold response may be seen in verses 24, 26, and 28. Now, rather than dive deep and just get hung up on some of the stuff that it talks about in these passages, it's far more important to look at what the repetition is in these passages. 
And so, yes, they were given it over into all kinds of sexual immorality, uh, men turning to men, women turning to women, uh, all kinds of greed and, and just revelry and debauchery, all kinds of stuff taking place. Okay. In every single one of these scenarios, here's the phrase, God gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. And in the Greek word here is paradokin. And this paradokin word is the idea, uh, William Barclay, phenomenal commentator, he translates this in the idea of God abandoned them to their desire. You catch that? God abandons them to their desire. We have J.B. Phillips who says, they gave up God, so God gave them up, right? So God's response, it's not a reaction, in his anger, he's angry. His response is then, okay, going to give you over to what it is that you desire. It's an incredibly strong word, meaning that the action of God, where he ha- it's the action of God where he hands humanity over for judgment because of their sins. And this passage, Paul is telling us what happens when people turn away from God. So here's the simplified version. When we lose God, we lose ourselves. When we lose God, we lose ourselves. It's as if God said, all right, if, the, if you want to turn away from me, I'm going to let you go. You want to go? Okay, go. I won't try to stop you. But you will experience the impact of that. You will experience the consequences of your heart's desire in this. So God gives his edict over the world. Man rebels against the edict. God gets angry. God's response is to hand us over to the desires. And then there's a consequence. Then there's a consequence. And that consequence is separation from God. It's absolute separation from God. But I think it's critically important for us to understand that that that's not exactly where the story ends. I mean, so far I've only given you um, or shared with you how God's anger works, right? God gives his edict. Man says no. God gets angry. God hands us over to our own desires. We deal with the consequences of those things. We have a tendency to go back and blame God for it, but, but we deal with the consequences of those things. And here's the progression. Sin, wrath, uh, action, right? Uh, whether it's accommodation to those things, or in some cases, as in the case of, of Israel with the serpents in the camp, um, or, or the fire in the camp, or you have Ananias and Sapphira, God demonstrates his sovereignty by making certain things happen in consequence to sin. But more often than not, he hands us over to, to the consequences of our own decision-making. And if I stop there, I'd only be giving you half the story, but it's not the best half of the story, obviously. For this to be complete, we got to talk about hope. You cannot talk about God's anger apart from hope. You cannot talk about God's anger outside of the umbrella of his love that every single thing flows from. And so there's anger, but there's hope. And the hope is wrapped up in an important word that we need to know. And maybe it's a word you've heard before. Uh, It's certainly not a word that I use a lot, but here's the word. Propitiation. It's even hard to say, actually. Propitiation 
is a rare word. It's used six times in the New Testament to describe the work of Jesus on the cross. To propitiate means to turn away wrath by offering a gift. You catch that? It's to turn away wrath by offering a gift. So in the Old Testament, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, right? This is considered the dwelling place of God within the temple. He would enter the Holy of Holies once a year. It was called the Day of Atonement. And bringing with him the blood of a bull. And then when he would sprinkle this bull's blood on the mercy seat, uh, this is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that blood would be accepted by God as an atonement for the sins. It was an atonement or a covering the sins of the people. The New Testament picks up on this idea of propitiation in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says this, talking about Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So he's, he's helping these believers come to an understanding of Jesus' connection with the Old Testament's temple, or even, for that matter, the New Testament's temple. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so what he's saying here is like, listen, this isn't just for us Jewish people. This is also for anyone that would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, that, that his blood, he is an atoning sacrifice for all. And the phrase atoning sacrifice translates the normal Greek word for propitiation. By offering himself, Jesus turned away God's wrath forever. That's the hope. That's the big thing. You see, God is a God of justice. He's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And so he needs to deal with the sin. And what happens is, is in the Old Testament and certainly within the New Testament prior to Jesus is that there is this day of atonement that comes where the blood of the bull is sprinkled on the mercy seat and that is to atone for the sacrifice or atone for the sins of the people. The trouble is, is that they had to do this every single year. There was no end to it. It had to consistently, constantly be done because it was insufficient to deal with the ultimate issue of sin. And so God comes along with this, and, and, and this is the imagery, this is what the Old Testament offerings are supposed to point us to, is that Jesus comes along as the perfect sacrifice, perfect lamb, even though he is angry at the sin and he gives people over to it, there's consequences to it. Jesus comes along and he says, here's the deal, you can't handle the consequence, so I did. Like, that's what happened. God's movement is always to reconcile people or give them the opportunity to be reconciled to himself. Always. And so he goes to the cross. He becomes that perfect sacrifice. His blood sprinkled out for all people all over the world, not just Jerusalem, like not just Israel, and forever. That's how God deals with his anger. He makes a way. He makes a way. And so because Jesus died, God's justice is now satisfied. Because Jesus died, God's wrath has now been turned away. His anger has now been turned away. And the price for sin has been paid. Like it's, it's done. Like He took care of it. And because Jesus died, God's mercy is now freely available to anybody who wants it. To anybody who wants it. What an awesome thought, right? That God's wrath is real, but so is his mercy. He 
satisfies his own wrath by offering his own son on the cross. And while quoting the prophet Joel in in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, Paul tells us this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans 10, 13. So if you were ever wondering about the consistency of Old and New Testament, here is Paul quoting the book of Joel, which is an Old Testament prophet. And he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's anger. So there's a couple of things here. The first thing is, is that by and large, what we see throughout the majority of dealing with God's anger in in the scriptures is that God gives an edict. Man says, forget it, go in my own way. God gets angry. His face burns against that sin, right? That's a sin of disobedience, a sin of rebellion. And anytime you have any form of rebellion towards the Lord, towards his word, You need to know his face burns against you. And then he gives us over to our sin. As a matter of fact, he actually even tells us to do that within the church, that for some people, we give them over to their sin, and in so doing, that it will turn them back towards the Father, back towards God, right? And and so this is what God does. He hands us over to our sin, and the desire that it turns us back over towards Him. So when we sin, there's consequences. And in those consequences, we have a decision to make. We either go further into that sin, or we turn. And when we turn, we come back to God. When we go further into that sin, we have these excruciating results. And the ultimate result is not accepting Jesus and perishing in hell. That's the ultimate result. And and God wants that none should perish, if you remember from last week. And so everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God makes a way for people, even though there are times where we say, okay, God, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. You've done a couple of things here that don't make 100% sense to me, but you are God and I am not. The majority of the time, God accommodates us by saying, fine, you don't want to listen to me? Here you go. And then at some point along the way, it goes bad. The results are negative. And it's it's important for us to figure out a way to align our own anger because all our emotions are given to us by God and they get twisted because of our sin nature. Love becomes lust. uh, Anger becomes rage. You know, these kinds of things. So how do we biblically deal with our own anger so that we more look like God. So here's a couple of things that he says. And we read about it in, in our first passage in James chapter 19, verse 9, chapter 1, verse 19 to 21, and then 26 to 27. It says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. All right. So, all right, church, listen up. This is what he's saying, right? Okay. So, okay, church, listen up. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. This is what we should do. And then he gives you the reason. He says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, and then he basically begins to describe what our human anger often looks like, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. He says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and all the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Verse 26, those who consider themselves religious, 
people of faith would be the, the way to say it, because often nowadays we have this negative concept of the word religion. In their day, they basically were saying, listen, you consider yourself religious, meaning a follower of God. It says, those who consider themselves religious and do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion, worthless. That's harsh for us, but it's true for us. In our day and age, we are so free to just shoot our mouths off. We run our tongues all over the place. Like we just, we go on social media, we say whatever we want, we demean people, we ridicule, we're harsh, we're hostile. And, and ah, for those of us who are people of faith and we're not controlling that communication, that our tongues where we're saying horrible and terrible things in front of people, behind people's backs, in our own minds, like, the religion is worthless. And then it says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans, to keep the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's the religion that God accepts. So we're going to take care of people. We're going to make sure that the world doesn't pollute us. How do we know the world's polluting us? When we're responding to the world in a place of anger that dishonors the Lord. Because it isn't slow. It isn't thought out. And it isn't redemptive. Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 26, 27, it says, In your anger do not sin. So it's not a sin to be angry, but we're not to sin in our anger. It says, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And this is a quote of Psalm chapter 4, verse 4 where it says, tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Search your hearts and be still. Be at peace. When we talk about anger, like anger is directed at sin. And so God gives an edict. Man says no. God gets angry, gives us over to our sin, Trouble follows. When we deal with anger, we want to emulate God's anger. God is not reactive. He responds, and His response ultimately is redemptive. God's love, His hate, His anger, all leads to the cross for the purpose of transforming mankind into something different. A new creation. The old gone, the new come. And our thinking and our words and our emotions need to line up in such a way that we're pursuing a redemptive focus rather than a selfish focus. This is what it means to be angry like God. God's anger seeks redemption. And there are those times where we read in the Scripture where God acts out in His... Um, dealing with the consequences of somebody's sin that seems harsh to us. And at that point, we need to rest on the rest of the truths that we have in Scripture about the nature and character of who He is because we don't have a full explanation for what took place there. What we do have is an understanding of who God is in the totality of Scripture. So we lean into that. And we can be confident in that. But when we're talking about modeling our 
anger after his. And in our anger, if we do not sin, we respond. And our response should always be redemptive. Should be redemptive. So here's the question. When you're dealing with your family, and you get angry, because you will, are your purposes in your responses to them redemptive? When you're on your social media and maybe you read something that frustrates you, is your response to it anger that leads to self being propagated up, wanting other people to approve of whatever it is that you're saying because it's just negative enough to get people responding? Or is your intention redemptive? Is it redemptive? Are we honoring in our response, honoring the Lord, honoring His creation. You see, we give ourselves a lot of license here, don't we? Well, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I was angry. In your anger, do not sin. Take a beat. Get angry? Not a problem. Not bad to be angry. But you own how you respond. I own how I respond. And I do not get to respond in a way that turns people away from God. I need to respond in a way that turns them to Him. So much like we've asked with the other emotions, how does your anger line up to God's? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together here. And I pray, Lord, that this is a study that others will take even deeper and ask more questions and learn more from your word about who you are as it relates to things like anger. And I, and I ask, Lord, that if there's anything going on within our hearts that need to be changed in, their, in the ways our minds are working that needs to be changed, then, Lord God, you would reveal that to us so we can repent of it and become more conformed to the image of your Son. In your holy and precious name I pray, amen.